0: Part two of Custer's Last Battle of Custer Battlefield by Robert M. Utley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 2B Campaign of 1876. It was not the Yellowstone, but the Black Hills that ignited the volatile mixture of Indian and white. The Black Hills were not part of the unceded territory, but of the Great Sioux Reservation itself with rumors of gold floating about the settlements of dakota the territory's promoters anxious to learn what the hazy blue mountains to the west might hide agitated for an official exploration of the black hills general sheridan also wanted to know more about this area for he had decided that he needed a fort somewhere near there to keep watch over the sioux early in eighteen seventy four he won authority to send a military expedition to look for a suitable location to command it he turned to his young protege at fort lincoln for the troopers of custer's seventh cavalry the black hills expedition of eighteen seventy four turned out to be a summer's lark among forested game-rich slopes drained by rushing creeks full of trout on the northeastern edge of the hills custer found an ideal site for sheridan's military post fort meade would be established there in eighteen seventy eight but of vaster greater consequence in the streams of the hills themselves he found confirmation of the rumors of gold a courier bearing official dispatches took the word out gold in the black hills shouted the newspaper headlines Even before the year's end, gold-seekers had rushed to the Black Hills, and the spring of 1875 saw the stampede underway in earnest. Custer City, Deadwood, and other mining camps sprang up in the most promising valleys. Vainly, the army tried to turn back the prospectors. Vainly, too, the government tried to buy the Black Hills from the Sioux although some of the agency chiefs gave signs of weakening the turbulent young warriors who spent part of the year with sitting bull would have none of it any chief who signed risked his life at the hands of these men the indian's attitude irritated government officials rationalizing that the sioux had broken the treaty by raiding around the edges of the unceded territory they laid plans to end the troublesome roaming of the non-treaty bands and to press the agency chiefs to sell the black hills president grant himself quietly approved a new policy soldiers would no longer bar settlers from the unceded territory west of the reservation boundary and if some go over the boundary into the black hills general sherman understood the president and the interior department would wink at it for the present these so-called settlers of course were interested in the black hills not the land to the west the new policy meant simply that prospectors could now enter the black hills without military interference shortly afterward in december 1875 the government moved against the non-treaties native runners bore an ultimatum from the commissioner of indian affairs to the sioux and cheyennes in the unceded territory report at the agencies by january thirty one eighteen seventy six or be branded hostile and driven in by the army in their snowbound bound tepees the hunting bands received the ultimatum with disdain the deadline was impossibly close at hand and moving camp in midwinter, especially such long distances, was exhausting and perilous. Such considerations, however, mattered little to the roamers because they had no intention of giving up their country or way of life for the reservation. Besides, they did not seriously believe that the army would make war on them. They ignored the summons. The deadline came without response on february one eighteen seventy six the secretary of the interior whose department included the indian bureau certified all indians in the unceded territory as hostile and asked the secretary of war to take such measures as he thought appropriate general sheridan welcomed this development he had urged a winter campaign that would catch the indians off guard and had fretted over the delay caused by the indian bureau's insistence on first giving them a chance to come in at once sheridan ordered his subordinate commanders to organize strong expeditions for an invasion of the indian stronghold These officers were Brigadier General George Crook, commanding the Department of the Platte from Omaha, and Brigadier General Alfred H. Terry, commanding the Department of Dakota from St. Paul. Crook, a reticent, unpretentious man who rarely shared his thoughts or plans with even his closest aides, had come to his present command the year before after defeating the Apaches of Arizona. With a thick blonde beard, forked and sometimes braided, a canvas suit and durable mule, he projected an image of homespun simplicity. Terry, tall, bearded, and a man of marked kindliness and humility, had practiced law before the Civil War, but had done so well as a wartime general of volunteers that he had been rewarded with a brigadier's commission in the regular service sheridan drew up a plan that called for a strategy of convergence three columns one from crook's department and two from terry's would converge from three directions on the locale thought to be occupied by the indians no particular concert of action would be attempted for each column would be strong enough to defeat any expected combination of indians the indian bureau assured the army that no more than five hundred to eight hundred fighting men ranged the entire unceded territory and they of course were scattered in their winter camps this estimate in fact was close to accurate between four hundred and five hundred lodges sheltering a population of some three thousand people made up sitting bulls following for the generals the uncertainty lay not in the present but in the future strength of their opponents in how many agency indians would head west this year and how soon thus sheridan's anxiety to take the field before spring when the yearly influx from the agencies would begin to reinforce the romers but estimates of indian strength figured critically in military calculations only in hindsight after disaster demanded an explanation no matter how many Indians gathered the planners assumed they could not remain together in large numbers for more than a few days their ponies quickly stripped the surrounding grass and fouled the water sources their hunters decimated and frightened away nearby game and their campfires consumed available fuel as general sheridan told a congressional committee in eighteen seventy four even though the sioux might field three thousand or four thousand fighting men we cannot have any war with indians because they cannot maintain five hundred men together for three days they cannot feed them the fact is that no officer of the three columns doubted the ability of the troops to whip any number of indians they could find the great worry rather was that the troops would not be able to find them or bring them to decisive battle if they did such was the lesson with rare exceptions of the army's experience in indian warfare only one of sheridan's three striking arms got under way before winter ended general crook the gray fox organized a force of eight hundred infantry and cavalry at fort fetterman wyoming on the north platte river Early in March, he pushed northward on the old Bozeman Trail through deep snow and sub-zero cold. Scouts spotted an Indian camp on Powder River, and Crook sent Colonel Joseph J. Reynolds and six companies of cavalry to attack it. On the bitterly cold morning of March 17, the troopers stormed into the village. The surprised Indians scattered, but rallied and counter-attacked. Timidly, Reynolds abandoned his prize and fell back to the main column. Angry and discouraged, Crook turned about and headed for Fort Fetterman to outfit for another try. He did not march again until May 29, two months later. Meantime, General Terry's preparations had been slowed by winter storms. Early in April, however, his Montana column shoved off from Fort Ellis in western Montana and marched eastward down the Yellowstone River. Commanded by Colonel John Gibbon, it consisted of about 450 men of the 2nd Cavalry and 7th Infantry, with 25 Crow Indians, the bitter enemies of the Sioux, serving as scouts. On May 17, Terry's other force, the Dakota Column, finally marched out of Fort Lincoln and pointed west toward the Yellowstone. Sheridan's winter campaign had become a summer campaign. Terry himself commanded the Dakota column. He had met Custer to command, but during the spring, Custer had been summoned to Washington as a witness in congressional hearings on frontier fraud. His testimony so angered President Grant that he ordered Terry to launch the expedition without Custer. Sheridan and Terry both asked the President to relent, and he finally allowed Custer to go along, but only at the head of his own regiment and only under Terry's command the dakota column included all twelve companies of the seventh cavalry numbering about six hundred officers and troopers the regiment stood at little more than half its authorized strength in addition there were two companies of the seventeenth infantry and one of the sixth to guard a train of a hundred and fifty supply wagons a detachment of the twentieth infantry serving three rapid-fire gatling guns and about thirty-five Arakara indian scouts altogether the dakota column numbered about nine hundred and twenty-five officers and enlisted men it was the seventh cavalry however that terry expected would run down the indians and bring them to battle despite the president's displeasure terry believed the tireless and tenacious custer just the officer to do it as customary the indians crook and terry sought had passed the winter widely dispersed in small camps among the valleys of the powder river country and even as far east as the black hills by march eighteen seventy six they had drifted to the powder itself and its eastern tributaries the village on powder river that colonel reynolds attacked on march seventeen consisted of about a hundred lodges of oglalas many conjus and cheyennes after the soldiers withdrew the warriors reclaimed their village and moved downstream then over to the east fork of the little powder to unite with crazy horse the fight on powder river served unmistakable notice that the soldiers meant war the combined bands now set forth to find sitting bull who was camped about sixty miles farther north on another branch of powder river Little by little, as word of the war sped from one camp to another, the Indians came together for self-defense. As the spring grass greened, they moved slowly westward from the powder to the tongue, and on to the rosebud, their numbers swelling as one group after another joined. By early June they had reached a strength of about 400 lodges, about 3,000 people, including some 800 warriors. While camped on the Lower Tongue River early in May, the Indians discovered soldiers on the north bank of the Yellowstone opposite the mouth of the Bighorn and sent in a raiding party of about 50 men, which ran off the horses of the Crow Scouts. Later, in the month, after the troops had moved farther down the Yellowstone, warriors harassed scouting and hunting parties from the military camp. After a buffalo hunt, the Indians moved up Rosebud Creek, early in june they paused for a sun dance the annual ceremony of tribal renewal and spiritual rededication it was a deeply moving experience made the more intense by the external menace and the common commitment to stand together in meeting it in a prophetic vision sitting bull saw many dead soldiers falling right into our camp it was an immensely thrilling and promising image the spring grass not only fattened the ponies of these indians but also set in motion the annual spring movement of their kinsmen from the agencies from standing rock cheyenne river red cloud and spotted tail agencies parties headed for the powder river country besides the usual lure of a summer's hunt this year they went in anger over the white people's attempt to seize the black hills and the government's ultimatum to abandon the unceded territory and this year because of these resentments they went in larger numbers than ever they moved slowly waiting for the grass to ripen and their ponies to gain strength as crook and terry prepared to march colonel gibbon tarried on the yellowstone his mission to prevent indians from crossing the river and escaping to the north Through late April and early May, he bivouacked on the north bank of the river, opposite the mouth of the Bighorn, then moved downstream to new camps near the mouth of the Rosebud. Rain and mud limited his movements, but his Crow scouts under the efficient Lt. James H. Bradley kept watch on the valleys to the south. Abundant signs gave notice of Sioux nearby, and the humiliating theft of the Crow Scouts ponies on May 3rd erased any lingering doubt. On May 16, Bradley, in a reconnoitering party, spotted the main Sioux and Cheyenne camp in the Tongue River Valley, and Gibbon tried without success to get his command across the Bankful River to march against it. Again, on May 27, the scouts located the quarry, this time in Rosebud Valley, only 18 miles from Gibbon's position. To the east, meantime, Terry and Custer searched for these same Indians. Curiously, in dispatches to Terry, Gibbon failed to inform his superior that he knew exactly the location of the big village that all three columns sought acting on reports that sitting bull himself waited on the little missouri to give battle terry sent custer to scout this stream for signs of sioux not until june eighth when he reached the yellowstone at the mouth of the powder and met officers from the montana column did terry learn where the indians were wrongly assuming the village would still be on the lower rosebud where brandley had seen it two weeks earlier terry laid plans to trap it between custer and gibbon first however he wanted to assure himself that the indians had not doubled back to the east he therefore sent six companies of the seventh cavalry under major marcus a reno on a southward swing to examine the powder and tongue valleys and rejoin the main command at the mouth of the tongue he then prepared to push on to meet the montana Column at the mouth of the powder terry established a supply depot manned by his own infantry and dismounted cavalry and another three infantry companies that had come up river from fort buford here too he met captain grant marsh with the river steamer far west chartered by the government to transport supplies and speed communication Leaving all his wagons at the depot and organizing a mule-pack train to carry provisions, Terry had Custer march the balance of his regiment up the Yellowstone to the mouth of the Tongue. Terry himself steamed up on the far west. Major Reno violated his instructions. Finding no fresh indications of Indians in either the Powder or Tongue valleys, he decided to cross to the Rosebud. Here he promptly discovered recent campsites. Since Bradley's sighting of May 27, Sitting Bull and his people had not, as Terry supposed, remained in place but had moved on up to the Rosebud to the southwest. Reno followed far enough to ensure that they had indeed left the area, then turned back to the Yellowstone to report to Terry. Unknown to Reno, as he countermarched on June 17, momentous events were taking place only 40 miles up this very valley. On May 29, General Crook had again marched forth on the old Bozeman Trail, leading more than a thousand men drawn from the 2nd and 3rd Cavalry and the 4th and 9th Infantry. Near the head of the Tongue River, he paused for a week, awaiting the arrival of Crow and Shoshone allies he had invited to help him fight the Sioux. When they finally appeared, 262 strong, the expedition moved. On the morning of June 17, Crook's column halted for coffee on Upper Rosebud Creek. Suddenly, hundreds of Sioux and Cheyenne warriors burst upon them. Crook's Indian allies rushed to the attack and held back the assailants until the troops could organize for battle. For six hours, the two sides fought valiantly among the rolling hills shouldering the Rosebud in mid-afternoon the indians broke off the battle and withdrew leaving crook bloodied but in possession of the field burdened by the wounded the gray fox decided that he had no choice but to fall back to the base camp he had left only the day before also the experience had left him badly shaken and determined not to risk another advance without a stronger command From his Goose Creek bivouac, near modern-day Sheridan, Wyoming, he called for reinforcements. Crook thus counted himself out of the events, shaping up only a short distance to the north. The intelligence that Major Reno brought back from the rosebud forced Terry to revise his plan of action. Actually, he changed the plan itself very little, merely shifting its place of execution farther west on the morning of june twenty one terry penned a dispatch to general sheridan telling of his new plan gibbon he said would march back up the yellowstone cross the river on the far west and then work his way up the bighorn to the mouth of the little bighorn at the same time custer would lead the seventh cavalry up the rosebud cross to the upper little bighorn and descend that stream toward gibbon i only hope that one of the two columns will find the indians he concluded i go personally with gibbon terry's plan reflected both what he knew and what he did not know about his opponents as for their strength the campsites that reno examined in the rosebud valley revealed about four hundred lodges the same as bradley's estimate a month earlier at two men per lodge this made about eight hundred fighters the whereabouts of the agency indians and whether any had joined the main camp since it had left the lower rosebud he did not know nor does he seem to have worried much about it the indians location was also a mystery terry knew that about two weeks earlier they were ascending the rosebud they could have continued up that river or swung eastward toward the black hills or they could have crossed to the little bighorn or turned north down tullock's creek toward the yellowstone the general impression was that they would be found on the upper little bighorn lower down they would be approaching the bighorn beyond which lay crow country and the risk of a collision with their long-time enemies because of the indians uncertain location terry's plan above all had to be flexible although not explicitly stated everyone expected custer with his aggressive drive and more mobile column to make the kill gibbon's role was mainly to block the northward flight of any indians who got away from custer's cavalry custer's mission therefore was to march up the rosebud on the indian trail if it turned to the little bighorn he was still to continue up the rosebud before swinging west to the upper reaches of the little bighorn this to make certain the indians did not get away to the south or east and to give Gibbon's infantry time to get into blocking position at the mouth of the Little Bighorn. Terry expected him there by June 26, but this date had no other significance. The 7th Cavalry carried rations for fifteen days, and Custer left no doubt that he would use them all, if necessary, to find the Indians. The notion that Terry meant for him to attack on June 26, arose only after the offensive ended in disaster. That afternoon, June 21, Terry summoned his principal subordinates to a conference in the cabin of the Far West, moored to the bank of the Yellowstone at the mouth of the Rosebud. Bent over a map spread out on a table, Terry, Gibbon, Custer, and Major James Brisbane, Gibbon's cavalry chief, worked out the details and timing of Terry's strategy. In their talk they assumed, as usual, that the Indians would scatter and run if given the chance general crook could have told them differently but word of the battle of the rosebud had not yet reached the yellowstone thus everyone worried not about how to defeat the indians but how to catch them before they discovered the soldiers and fled in all directions as gibbon said the object of the plan was to prevent the escape of the indians which was the idea pervading the minds of all of us the next morning as the seventh cavalry prepared to march Terry handed Custer written orders that his adjutant-general had put to paper during the night. In the never-ending, never-conclusive attempt to fix the blame for what happened afterward, every word and every nuance of those orders would be fiercely debated. At noon on June 22, the 7th Cavalry passed in review before Terry, Gibbon, and Custer astride their mounts the regimental band custer's pride had been left at the powder river base but massed trumpets provided a measure of panoply company by company they trooped in front of their commanders each raising its own cloud of dust each marked by a swallowtail guidon in the pattern of an american flag as usual in the field the lean bronzed troopers displayed every variety of costume slouch hats gray or blue shirts and the regulation sky-blue trousers stuffed into cavalry boots predominated to ease saddle wear many had lined their trouser seats with canvas each man carried a springfield single-shot carbine and a colt revolver with a hundred cartridges for the former and twenty-four for the latter sabres had been left behind they were cumbersome and soldiers rarely got close enough to indians to use them anyway custer's command numbered thirty-one officers and five hundred and sixty-six enlisted men thirty-five indian scouts the Arikaras, four sioux and six crows borrowed from gibbon and about a dozen packers guides and other civilian employees bringing up the rear a train of pack mules bore rations and forage for fifteen days together with reserve carbine ammunition of fifty rounds per man the train had already begun to give trouble some of the mules breaking formation and throwing their packs despite his embarrassment over the train custer swelled with pride at the spectacle he wore his customary field gear fringed buckskin jacket and trousers knee-high troop boots and scarlet cravat and broad-shouldered blue shirt of civil war memory and a wide-brimmed white hat Two holsters encased a pair of snub-nosed English revolvers. Close-cropped hair belied his Indian name, Long Hair, and with ragged beard and fierce sunburn, he hardly resembled the immaculate officer depicted by the artist of the Eastern Journals. A mounted orderly bore his personal pennant, displaying white-crossed sabres against a red and blue field. The regiment's formidable appearance concealed serious internal conflicts some of the officers accorded custer blind loyalty and adulation notable among them were captain thomas B. weir lieutenant william w cook the canadian born regimental adjutant and of course his own relatives brother captain thomas w custer brother-in-law lieutenant james calhoun and two civilians brother boston hired as a forage master and nephew armstrong reed embarked on a summer's outing with his namesake uncle other officers looked on custer with contempt or even loathing among these were his two senior subordinates major marcus a reno and captain frederick w benteen reno dark and swarthy had done well as a colonel in the civil war but no longer commanded much respect from his brother officers benteen captain of company h had been a wartime lieutenant colonel lean muscular clean-shaven and white-haired fearless in battle he was widely admired as the ideal company commander he returned the compliment with ill-tempered ridicule of all but a few brother officers for custer he harboured a passionate hatred that soured his character for the rest of his life amid clouds of choking dust custer's troopers pushed up the rosebud they covered twelve miles that afternoon but racked up thirty each on the next two days On the second day, June 23, they struck the Indian trail that Major Reno had already examined, and by the morning of the 24th they had reached the limit of Reno's reconnaissance. Here they paused at the site where the Sioux had staged their sun dance earlier in the month. The Indian scouts saw enough evidence of powerful medicine to make them restive. Shortly after leaving the Sundance campsite, the column confronted another development. The Indian Trail, hitherto by all indications several weeks old, suddenly turned fresh. Signs estimated to be no more than two days old suggested that the quarry could not be very far away, perhaps as near as twenty miles. The scouts probably knew the explanation, but no one consulted them, and the officers speculated at length custer sent the crows forward to gather more information across the rosebud divide to the west circumstances conspired to give the sioux and cheyennes crucial advantages in the coming conflict ignorant as yet of custer's approach they had no plans to meet the danger he presented extraordinary good fortune however came to their support as sitting bull's following made its way slowly up the rosebud through early june a scattering of people arrived from the agencies at the same time however others departed on hunting forays to scout the enemy's movements and even to trade for arms and ammunition at distant points on the missouri river the size of the village therefore remained about four hundred tepees the scouting parties kept watch on general crook as well as colonel gibbon on june ninth one even tried to run off crook's cavalry horses but failed on june sixteenth another group saw crook break camp and head down the Rosebud. Hurrying back to warn of the danger, they found that the village had crossed from the Rosebud to a tributary of the Little Bighorn, later named Reno Creek. The next day, most of the young men, perhaps 500 to 700, rode back to the Rosebud and upstream to head off the soldiers, whose further advance would soon imperil the village. In fierce fighting, they succeeded in their aim, for next day Crook's men countermarched to their base at Goose Creek. The chiefs decided to move the village again. On June 18, the people struck camp, journeyed down Reno Creek to the Little Bighorn, then turned south, up the valley, and pitched their tepees. Here, a short distance above the mouth of Reno Creek, they remained for six days here they staged a festive celebration of the victory over the soldiers on the rosebud and here they gained another cause for celebration for at last their brethren from the agencies began to arrive on the back trail from the rosebud down to reno creek and down the little bighorn itself they came suddenly and in great numbers during these six days sitting bull's village more than doubled from four hundred to nearly a thousand lodges from three thousand to nearly seven thousand people from eight hundred to nearly two thousand warriors in six separate tribal circles they crowded the narrow valley hunkpapas oglalas many conjus sans arcs blackfoot two kettles Brulees, and a gathering of yanktonais and santis sioux but not tetons made up the five sioux circles while a hundred and twenty cheyenne lodges rounded out the great array even a handful of arapahoes cast their lot with their friends the tribal leaders had planned a movement farther up the little bighorn to the upper portion of the valley exactly where general terry expected to find them scouts however brought word of antelope herds to the north and west downstream on june twenty fourth therefore they moved the village northward back down the little bighorn in the direction from which they had come the new location afforded an appealing setting The upper end of the camp, anchored by the Hunkpapa Circle, lay about two miles below the mouth of Reno Creek. The rest of the teepees sprawled along the west bank of the river for nearly three miles downstream. On the west, the level valley, ranging from one-half mile to a full mile in width, ended in low grassy hills and benches where the huge pony herd grazed. On the eastern edge of the valley, the river, cold and bank-full with the spring runoff from the Bighorn Mountains, meandered among thickets of shady cottonwood trees. A series of ragged bluffs rose steeply from the east bank of the river to a height of some 300 feet. On the south, the bluffs fell away to Reno Creek on the north to a dry watercourse later called medicine tail coulee which opened on the river across from the many conju and sands arc circles north of medicine tail the breaks rose in tumbled furrows to a long narrow ridge paralleling the valley opposite the lower end of the village where the oglalas and northern cheyennes camped from here one could scan the entire village and beyond to the snow-mantled Bighorn Mountains low on the southwestern horizon. Here on the banks of the pretty stream the Sioux called the Greasy Grass stretched a village of unusual size. Such numbers consumed immense quantities of game, forage, and firewood, and so could not remain long in one place or even together in one village it had come together in this strength only in the few days preceding and it could stay together for more than a few days or a week only through luck frequent moves and constant labor white apologists seeking to explain the disaster this coalition of tribes wrought would later endow it with an immensity it never approached still it was big by all standards of the time and it was more than twice as big as any of the army officers looking for it anticipated furthermore and of still greater portent the village contained a people basking proudly in the fullness of tribal power contrary to the planning assumptions and the mindset of army officers the indians had little inclination to avoid conflict Their grievances united them in a determination to fight against those who would seize the Black Hills, and send soldiers to force them out of the unceded territory guaranteed by the Treaty of 1868. Sitting Bull's Sundance prophecy, and their victory at the Rosebud, hardened their resolve. And all these measures of strength aside, they would, as always, fight tenaciously if the enemy threatened their women and children such was the objective that george armstrong custer sought as the sun rose on that sunday june twenty five eighteen seventy six sidebar elizabeth bacon custer was thirty-four when this photograph was taken in eighteen seventy six she was devoted to her husband and had followed him from one frontier station to another their last post was fort abraham lincoln dakota territory which served as their home and custer's base of operations from eighteen seventy three until eighteen seventy six it was from here on may seventeenth eighteen seventy six that he set out on the campaign that ended in defeat and death on the little bighorn mrs custer survived her husband by fifty-seven years and spent every one of them guarding and perpetuating his memory she died in 1933 at the age of ninety-one lieutenant colonel and mrs custer in the study of their home at fort lincoln about eighteen seventy three the large portrait on the wall at left shows custer in his civil war garb the one on the right is general philip sheridan sidebar the black hills expedition of eighteen seventy four in contrast to treeless plains on all sides the black hills held a special place in the affections of the sioux they treasured the hills as their meat pack rich in game with sheltered valleys and abundant firewood ideal for winter camping drawn by these resources the sioux had seized the black hills from the kiowas a century earlier and had jealously guarded them against whites and other indians ever since In the Treaty of 1868, the government had included the Black Hills in the Great Sioux Reservation. Whites coveted the Black Hills. Remote, mysterious, imperfectly known, the region inspired persistent rumors of gold that periodically set off mining boomlets in frontier towns. Settlers denounced the Treaty of 1868 and demanded that the government investigate the reports of gold. Officially, the Custer Expedition of 1874 sought a suitable location for a military post to keep watch on the Sioux. The presence of two uh, practical miners with the expedition suggested another purpose as well. Their discovery of gold, from the grassroots down, set off a rush of prospectors. The Sioux reacted in fury. Thieves' Road, they branded Custer's Trail, to the Black Hills, and they angrily turned aside government efforts to buy the mineral region. The Thieves' Road led not only to the Black Hills, but ultimately to the Little Bighorn. If Custer dug his own grave in the Black Hills, as some suggested, his death on the Little Bighorn doomed Sue hopes of keeping the Hills, in the atmosphere of national outrage stirred by custer's last stand the government forced the sioux to sell the black hills thirty-eight members of custer's officer and scientific corps pose for a group portrait at the camp on box elder creek dakota territory august thirteenth eighteen seventy four about half of the men shown here took part in the battle of the little bighorn almost two years later Sidebar. Indian leaders. The Sioux and Cheyennes had a number of outstanding leaders. Their authority over others, however, was much more apparent than real. In battle, the Indian fought as an individual, not bound to any particular group, and free to come and go as he chose. Indians did not have commanders and sub-commanders, as the U.S. Army did. Each tribe had various warrior societies, each with its chief and sub-chiefs. Some of them were great warriors, but in battle they could not give an order and expect to have it obeyed. Any influence the chiefs had was based on personal prowess, and they risked losing this prestige every time they failed in an undertaking. Some of the more prominent Indian leaders who took part in the Battle of the Little Bighorn are shown on the following pages. 1. Sitting Bull Hunkpapa Sioux 2. Crow King Hunkpapa Sioux 3. Jumping Bear, Blackfoot Sioux, 4. Rain in the Face, papa Sioux, 5. Red Horse, Mini Kunju Sioux, 6. Spotted Eagle, Sanzarque Sioux, 7. Low Dog, Oglala Sioux, 8. Two Moon, Northern Cheyenne. SIDEBAR THE Sioux WAR OF 1876 In the spring and early summer of 1876, General Philip H. Sheridan sent three army columns, totaling 2,500 men, into southeastern Montana territory. Their mission, to break up a concentration of Sioux and Cheyenne Indians deemed hostile by the U.S. government and drive them onto reservations. One column, led by General George Crook, was attacked and forced to turn back at the Battle of the Rosebud the other two under colonel john gibbon and general alfred h terry joined on the yellowstone at the mouth of the rosebud from here terry the expedition's commander laid plans to locate the indians then believed to be in the little bighorn valley taking gibbon's column on up the yellowstone to approach the valley from the north Terry sent Lieutenant Colonel George A. Custer and the 7th Cavalry on a wide sweep to the south to approach it from the opposite direction. If all went well, the Indians would be caught between the two forces. The movements of the various troop columns are shown on the map, along with many of the places that figured prominently in the events leading to the Battle of the Little Bighorn. SIDEBAR brigadier-general george crook who commanded the department of the platte in eighteen seventy six had already helped to end indian wars in southern oregon idaho northern california and arizona he understood the indian way of life probably better than any other army officer and blamed most of the troubles on tardy and broken faith on the part of the general government his defeat at the battle of the rosebud on june seventeenth eighteen seventy six knocked his troops completely out of the campaign and may have contributed to custer's defeat at the little bighorn sidebar colonel john gibbon commanded the montana column out of fort ellis A battle-scarred veteran of 34 years of military service, he was supposed to prevent the escape of the Indians that Custer's cavalry column would drive toward him, but he feared that Custer would find the Indians before his infantry was in position to block their northward flight. Gibbon's soldiers were the first to arrive at the Little Bighorn battlefield to rescue the survivors of Custer's command on June 27. SIDEBAR Brigadier General Alfred H. Terry, Custer's commander, had headed the Department of Dakota since 1873. Though he had never led a field operation against Indians until the 1876 Sioux campaign, he was an able and well-liked officer. His ambiguously phrased June 22nd orders to Custer laid the basis for endless controversy over whether they had been obeyed or disobeyed. Terry refused all public comment on the subject but privately he wrote Sheridan that quote, "our plan must have been successful had it been carried out." End quote. Sidebar Terry's orders to Custer Camp at mouth of Rosebud River Montana Territory June 22 1876 Colonel the brigadier-general commanding directs that as soon as your regiment can be made ready for the march you will proceed up the rosebud in pursuit of the indians whose trail was discovered by major reno a few days since it is of course impossible to give you any definite instructions in regard to this movement and were it not impossible to do so the department commander places too much confidence in your zeal energy and ability to wish to impose upon you precise orders which might hamper your action when nearly in contact with the enemy he will however indicate to you his own views of what your action should be and he desires that you should conform to them unless you shall see sufficient reason for departing from them he thinks that you should proceed up the rosebud until you ascertain definitely the direction in which the trail above spoken of leads should it be found, as it appears almost certain that it will be found, to turn towards the Little Horn, he thinks that you should still proceed southward, perhaps as far as the headwaters of the Tongue, and then turn toward the Little Horn, feeling constantly, however, to your left, so as to preclude the escape of the Indians to the south or southeast by passing around your left flank. The column of Colonel Gibbon is now in motion for the mouth of the big horn. As soon as it reaches that point it will cross the Yellowstone and move up at least as far as the forks of the big and little horns. Of course its future movements must be controlled by circumstances as they arise, but it is hoped that the Indians, if upon the little horn, may be so nearly enclosed by the two columns that their escape will be impossible. The Department Commander desires that on your way up the Rosebud you should thoroughly examine the upper part of Tulloch's Creek, and that you should endeavor to send a scout through to Colonel Gibbon's column with the information of the result of your examination. The lower part of this creek will be examined by a detachment from Colonel Gibbon's command. The supply steamer will be pushed up the Big Horn as far as the forks of the river is found to be navigable for that distance, and the department commander who will accompany the column of colonel gibbon desires you to report to him there not later than the expiration of the time for which your troops are rationed unless in the meantime you receive further orders very respectfully your obedient servant e w smith captain eighteenth infantry acting assistant adjutant general sidebar the sioux warrior for sioux males war was both sport and ceremony part of the very fabric of tribal life it was a way to acquire property especially horses and to win glory and respect by performing brave deeds in combat the sioux went to war to capture horses from their enemies and to protect and defend their hunting grounds there were two types of forays horse raids in which the object was to steal into an enemy village and make off with its horses and war parties, which were usually mounted for revenge or tribal defense. Horse raids might number from a few warriors to 15 or 20. War parties were usually larger, perhaps as many as a hundred warriors, plus a few boys for menial chores and a few women for cooking. Before the advent of the white man on the plains in the 1830s, fighting between tribes was usually small and sporadic. A warrior won honor in combat by counting coup. A coup was an act of daring, striking an enemy, victory in hand-to-hand combat, saving a friend in battle, stealing a horse. It entitled a warrior to wear an eagle feather on the back of his head and distinctive marks on his clothing. Enough coup, and a warrior had a war bonnet, which he wore in battle to show his ability a warrior usually went on the war-path if not into battle with an impressive amount of gear a bow and arrow a knife a shield sometimes a lance and a parfleche in which he carried extra moccasins war paint ceremonial items a pipe and tobacco war clothing including a bonnet and coup feathers if he had them and jerky and pemmican warriors at the little bighorn also carried rifles sidebar the cavalryman the mounted trooper unlike his adversary fought for no great national or personal cause he was a volunteer often a recent immigrant who did his job for his pay about thirteen dollars a month and the honor of his uniform the army taught him how to ride how to use his weapons how to fight mounted or dismounted with his troops or battalion and it probably gave him whatever basic education he had it took the army decades to learn how to fight the indians on their own terms the plains warrior was a master of guerrilla warfare skillful highly motivated and mobile the army was accustomed to fighting in conventional ways which placed a premium on superior numbers and firepower eventually during the eighteen seventies and eighteen eighties the army went over to mobile tactics and by the use of better intelligence converging columns and winter campaigning it succeeded in breaking the last resistance of the indians the cavalry was the main instrument of this warfare when employed with infantry it was a formidable opponent this illustration shows a veteran cavalryman of eighteen seventy six he is dressed in the uniform that became generally available after eighteen seventy three a blue wool blouse sky-blue trousers grey shirt boots and a wide-brimmed civilian hat in place of the army hat which was poorly made and quickly lost its shape he is armed with a forty five caliber springfield carbine a single shot breech loader and a forty five colt revolver both models eighteen seventy three he was authorized a saber, but usually left it behind on campaign because he rarely got close enough to the enemy to use it. Items in inset illustration: carbine and carbine sling, saber, forty-five colt revolver and cartridge belt, shelter half, knife and sheath, overcoat, picket pin and lariat, sideline, feedback, canteen, haversack, tin cup saddlebags poncho forage sack sidebar custer's principal subordinates were major marcus a reno and captain frederick w bentine while neither officer cared much for the other they were linked first by their mutual dislike of custer and then by the necessity of defending their conduct in the battle of the little Bighorn. both men considered custer highly overrated as a military leader and laid the blame for the defeat squarely on his shoulders sidebar lieutenant william w cook thirty-year-old canadian soldier of fortune was the seventh cavalry's adjutant he was a strong custer supporter and one of the ablest and most efficient members of the regiment he scribbled the last message from custer on a page torn from his memorandum book and died beside his chief an hour later on what is now known as custer hill sidebar custer family casualties the custer family lost five of its members in the battle of the little bighorn the three brothers george thomas and boston their nephew harry reed and their brother-in-law james calhoun who was married to their sister margaret tom custer a two-time medal of honor winner commanded company c and died beside his older brother boston custer a civilian guide and harry reed who had come along expecting to see the seventh cavalry win another quick victory were killed nearby and lieutenant calhoun commanding company l perished with his troops on the hill that now bears his name end of sidebars end of section 2b